the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, David is afraid and doesn't know who he can trust. So he goes to Jonathan, a true friend. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 20 verse 1. The title of the message is, A Broken Heart. First Samuel chapter 20, 19, ended with a little bit of the weird. But when we begin chapter 20, we get into something that's unfortunately very normal, very real. We saw in chapter 19 that the Lord protected David from Saul and his soldiers through Samuel and his school of prophets. But nothing is said about what happens next. I mean, it doesn't answer that. Like, does Saul apologize? Does he make a new promise not to harm David? Does David use this opportunity to flee while Saul and his soldiers are preaching? None of this is known. But what David does know is that Saul broke his oath to God, not just to him, but to the Lord. And he knows he's not safe even if Saul makes a new promise. How confusing this must be for David. Why does my king, why does my father-in-law want to kill me? What did I do wrong? How did this happen? David certainly must have experienced disappointment before, but this chapter will reveal to us his broken heart. So chapter 20, we begin in verse 1. And David fled from Naoth in Ramah, and he came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is mine iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said unto him, God forbid, you shall not die. Behold, my father will do nothing, either great or small, but that he will show it to me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. But David swore moreover and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found grace in your eyes. And he says, Let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. David here, as soon as he gets away from the school of prophets where Saul and the soldiers are prophesying. He comes and he finds Jonathan and he confronts Jonathan with these questions. What have I done? What is my iniquity? What is my sin before your father that he would want to kill me? These are normal questions to ask when you've been wronged. And you know, there's nothing wrong with asking them, nothing wrong with having them go through your mind. What did I do? What have I done wrong? I don't know what I've done wrong. But it's what you do with the answers or lack of answers that make you right or wrong. And so 
If you've asked these questions, I want to encourage you, you're not alone. If you've experienced hurt or betrayal or a broken heart, you're not alone. Others have experienced that confusion. They've experienced that pain. And we read in Psalm 89, verses 1 through 13 in our scripture reading, but I want to pick it up in verse 14 and read through verse 18, because there is good news. In the first 13 verses, the psalmist, it calls him Ethan the Ezraite, he talks about the awesomeness of God. He talks about how there's no one like the Lord at all. And talks about why there's no one like the Lord. But when you get down to verse 14 of Psalm 89, he begins to explain how this now translates to his people. He says in verse 14 of Psalm 89, justice, righteousness, and judgment are the habitation or foundation of your throne. Lord, you never do anything wrong. You never are unfair. You always right every wrong. Mercy and truth shall go before your face. The word there, mercy, means his loving kindness, his loyal love towards us. It will go before his face. And so in verse 15, it says, blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. The joyful sound of what? His mercy, his words of love, and his words of truth. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance, in the light of the glory of his understanding that he never makes any mistakes, that he never fails, that he's always just. And so verse 16 says, In your name shall they rejoice all the day, and in your righteousness shall they be exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and in your favor our horn shall be exalted. Maybe others may not favor us. Others might look down on us. Others might betray us. But it's in his favor that's upon us that our horn, our strength is exalted. For the Lord is our defense, and the Holy One of Israel is our king. Even if your king fails you, betrays you. Your king really hasn't because the Lord, for those who trust in him, those who are his people, he is our king. Psalm 89, as I mentioned earlier, is written by Ethan the Ezraite. He was one of David's three worship leaders. He had another man named He-Man, not the cartoon character, and another one named Asaph. And these three guys rotated in their jobs as David's worship leaders in the tabernacle. And the Bible says that later in Ethan's life, that the only wiser man than him in the kingdom was Solomon. Isn't that interesting? So this is someone we should listen to. If he's written a song with wisdom for us, we should listen to it. And when I read through this, you think, well, yeah, that's great. Everything's going good for this guy, though. I would encourage you, read the rest of the psalm. He doesn't write the psalm in good times. He writes this psalm in the latter part of David's reign when David is struggling with Absalom's desire to overthrow him, when David is on the run, when his life is in danger again. So at the end of the song, in verse 46, he says this, How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Shall your wrath burn like fire? He comes down in verse 49, he says, Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses which you swear unto David in your truth? And he's already declared that Mercy, that love, that loving kindness, and his truth is always before God's face. But Ethan asks the question, he goes, Lord, where is it now? It's hard to see it right now. So it is normal, even for a wise man, even for a godly man, to have these questions, to have these thoughts. And what I love about this song and what makes it so beautiful is because while he ends with anguished questions, 
He remembers God's faithfulness when David was betrayed by Saul. That's how he starts the song. Lord, I don't know what you're doing, and I can't see your love and your truth right now, but I know you took care of my master before, my king before. I know you took care of me before, and I know you will this time too. He closes with the words, blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. It is truth, and it will always be truth. That's what he says. It's truth, and it will always be truth, even though right now I don't know the answer to these questions. And so if you're experiencing that brokenness right now, that brokenheartedness, verses 14 through 18, they are your future, even though you may have questions like verse 46 and verse 49. So ask God those questions. It's okay. But remember his promise and remember his past faithfulness, for they are keys to our future trusting in him. Well, in verse 2, back in 1 Samuel 20, David pours out these questions to Jonathan, and Jonathan's kind of shocked. He says to him, God forbid, which means never. Don't say that again. When, what do you mean? That your father, my father seeks your life. Don't say that again. That's not true. You see, Saul didn't tell Jonathan about his attempt to arrest David in Naoth. And Jonathan could not conceive that his father would break his oath to David. And so he, he thinks that it's got to be that demon again. It, this is not an actual like intent-minded. This is not an act of the will of his father. This is just his madness is upon him. Behold, he says, my father will do nothing, either great or small, but that he will show it to me. He doesn't make any choices unless he tells me about it. And why should my father hide this from me? In other words, he reminds David, he goes, he, remember in the past, he didn't hide it from him when he wanted to kill you before, and we were able to work through all that. So why would he hide it from me this time? And so he just comes out and says, you will not die. It is not so. Whatever happened, David, it can be fixed. Let's reason through things here. This has happened before. You know my father's tormented. But David, he is not buying it this time. He says in verse 3, David swear moreover, which means he made an oath and he repeated it over and over and over again. We will find out what these words are that he repeats at the end of the verse. But first, David explains why he swears this oath. He says, your father certainly knows that I have found grace in your eyes. And he says, let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. He says, Jonathan, the word there, grieved, means injured, distressed, or in pain. He says, your father's kept this from you because he knows how close we are. And you're wrong, Jonathan. This can't be worked out. I am a dead man walking. He says, as truly as the Lord lives, this is his oath that he keeps saying over and over again, as truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, as sure as God's alive and you're standing in front of me right now alive, he says, there is but a step between me and death. Now that phrase step between is a very pictorial word in the Hebrew because it's the picture of someone who has run out of room and he's standing in front of a cliff. And there is no other place to step. The very next step will take you over the cliff. And that is all David sees right now. He has, I have no options. I am out of options. I have nowhere to go. Any step I take is going to cause me to plunge off the edge of the cliff. And David is emotionally shaken up. And despite Jonathan's calming assurances, he is still terrified. And so Jonathan attempts to graciously reason with him again. In verse 4, Jonathan says to David, whatever your soul desires, I will even do it for you. Literally, it means, what does your heart ask of me? David, I understand you're not buying my reasoning, but I am on your side. What can I do to fix this? 
I'm your friend. I'm not against you. What can I do to fix this? And so in verse 5, David proposes a plan to ascertain the truth about Saul. Since they can't agree, he says, I got a plan then. And David said to Jonathan, verse 5, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I shall not fail to sit with the king at meat. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field until the third day at evening. And if your father at all miss me, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me that he might run to Bethlehem, his city. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. And if he say thus, that's okay, it's well. Well, then your servant shall have peace. But if he be very wroth, then be sure that evil is determined by him. David first concocts a lie, hoping to get a response from Saul. He says, when the new moon feast occurs, now the new moon phase of the lunar cycle occurs every 29 and a half days. So we are on a a calendar that changes every single month. So the new moon can be at Sometimes it's not always on the first of the month in our calendar. In fact, it's all over the place in our calendar. But being on a 30-day calendar like the, the Jews were, and the fact that they started their months in the middle of our months, meant that Israel celebrated the new moon feast on the first of each month. In Numbers chapter 28, you can read about it in verses 11 through 15. It says, you take this day and you have a celebration. And so they would do that. Now, what's interesting is it's a sign of Israel's prosperity under Saul that they were able to celebrate a monthly festival for multiple days because we're going to see that this festival goes on at least for three days. So so things were going good in Israel at this point in time that they could do that. And, And this proves that prosperity is not a guarantee of God's approval of my behavior. Now, David explains when we have this feast, and it should not fail that I'm supposed to be there to sit with the king at food. In other words, it's my duty as a high ranking member of Saul's court. It should not fail that I should sit with the king to eat. And that's where I'm supposed to be. He says, but, he says, this is what I want you to do. Let me go, which means literally, instead of me being where I'm supposed to be, he says, I want to see how your father reacts to my absence. So can you give me official permission to be absent? That's what I want you to do, Jonathan. You give me official permission to be absent. Let me go, that I might hide myself in the field even until the third day at evening. And he says, if your father at all miss me, Then say, tell him, well, David earnestly asked leave of me, my permission, and obviously Jonathan would say I gave it, that he might run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all of his family. Now, of course, this is a lie, and and David was either too frightened to care or saw nothing wrong with lying for the purpose of staying alive. Uh, The Bible does not give an opinion on David's actions here, so I will say nothing, except to say that I do think other solutions were possible without making up a story. In verse 7, he explains, this is what I'm looking for. This is David's plan. If he, Saul, say thus, well, it's well. The phrase there actually means it's a good thing. In other words, that for him to miss a a work party, in essence, uh, for the purpose of celebrating something special with his family, that's a good thing. If Saul commends me for that, that decision, well, then he says, your servant shall have peace. The word there, peace is that word shalom. And, And when we get later on in the chapter, we're going to talk about how deep of a meaning this word has. But for right now, he'll basically be saying, if he says, that's great, it's good for David to be with his family during this time. If he says that, then Jonathan, all's well, and I'll admit you are right. He says, but if he be very wroth, in other words, if he is angry to the point of losing his temper, he says, then you be sure that evil is determined by him. 
The phrase there, you be sure, means you must acknowledge, Jonathan. You must acknowledge that you're wrong and I'm a dead man because he has evil determined against me. The word evil there means the harmful plan. His plan to kill me, that it is determined. The word it means completed. His mind is made up. Now, this is interesting because David doesn't dismiss Jonathan's testimony completely, and yet he does not agree with it. And so he proposes this plan to figure out which one of them is correct because what they decide to do moving forward, his life is going to depend upon it. It is possible to be dear friends and disagree. It is. Christians should be the last who write someone off because of a disagreement. We should be the last people who do that. And if you think your issue is so important that you have a right to be mad or you have a right to break off that friendship with somebody, consider that David's life is literally on the line. There isn't a more important thing that you could disagree with someone on than that. And yet David proposes this way that they can work through this. Now, David also in verse 8 tells Jonathan that doing this plan will prove his loyalty. Therefore, verse 8, by doing this, You shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Notwithstanding, if there be in me iniquity, slay me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? The word there, deal kindly, means to perform, to do, to prove your loyal love. He says, you have entered into a covenant with me, Jonathan. We have said that we would have each other's back no matter what. You already said you've got my back, that you're my friend in this. If that's true, then you'll show it, you'll prove it, by doing this. Now, David is not accusing Jonathan of being disloyal, nor is he asking Jonathan to prove his love because he doubts it. But David doesn't know who he can trust right now. He's been betrayed by his own father-in-law. He's been betrayed by the king that he has loyally served and has no understanding why his king would be angry with him. He is not sure what's true right now. And we see the fact that David still his heart's in the right place, even though he's struggling by what he says at the end. Notwithstanding, despite David's terror, his core values remain. Notwithstanding, if there be iniquity in me, he says, if, there, if I have done wrong, then kill me yourself. Don't wait, don't wait to bring me to your father. Do the deed now. Why try to repair my relationship with your father if I intend him harm and you believe so? The word there, iniquity, means a wrongdoing that's worthy of punishment, a wrongdoing that makes someone guilty. He says, do the right, if that's the case with me, do the right thing and kill me now before I can harm the nation any further. And so I love this about David because even though they're having a disagreement, he's humble enough to say, maybe I have done something wrong. Maybe, maybe I, I am a problem to the nation. David's humility shines here because he actually gives Jonathan permission to break his promise if he's a, really a threat to the king. I love that because the Bible tells us love doesn't rejoice in evil, nor does it support evil. David doesn't presume that just because he can't see the wrong he's done, that he hasn't done anything wrong. One of the hardest times you can be is when you're in a conversation with somebody and they're telling you this is wrong that has happened, and you're going, I don't think I did anything wrong. (laughs) And sometimes you just have to keep hearing it over and over again and then take it to the Lord. And there's been moments when, man, I was... I had dug in and I was really standing my ground in a situation with somebody and then I go back to the Lord repeatedly because I keep saying, Lord, am I not seeing something? And there have been times when the Lord said, yeah, you have a thick skull. It takes me a while to get through to you sometimes. And then you realize and you go, wow, Lord, I, 
there are things I could have done better with this. And the beautiful thing that takes place when you're constantly just asking the Lord to search your heart, examine your heart, and being humble before him is that, you know, if there are things that are off, he will break through and he will show you. And then you can go make them right, right? Well, verse 9, Jonathan reminds David of his past faithfulness. He says unto David, Jonathan said, far be it from you. In other words, he's saying, you know, Jonathan, I'm not doubting your loyalty, but this is the way you'll, you'll show me. I don't know who to trust right now. Jonathan says, far be it from you, for if I knew certainly that evil were determined by my father to come unto you, then would I not tell it to you? He says, David, don't ever doubt my commitment. I will keep my promise to you. And he reminds David that he warned him the first time that Saul expressed a desire to kill him. If my father plans to kill you, he said nothing to me about it, David. And you know what? That was good enough for David. So now it's just a matter of logistics, verse 10. Then said David to Jonathan, well, who shall tell me? Or what if your father answer you roughly? <laughs> I love this because it shows David still shaken up. He's like, okay, all right, so you and me are okay? Yeah, we're okay. All right, we got a plan? Okay, we got a plan. But then what? What happens if things go bad? <laughs> I mean, you can tell that there's trust there. You can tell that there's still closeness there, even though this is a very stressful time in their friendship. And yet, you know, David still, he's like, what do I do if he, what do I do if he does want to kill me, you know? How will I find out? What do I, how will I find out what's going on? They've got a plan, but what will he do if his worst fears prove true? And you know, when your heart is wretched like this, it is not good to be alone with your thoughts. Have you ever been in a place like this where you are just terrified, where you are worried about the future and you're alone? It's awful. Because when all you have is what your mind can conjure up, the mind, what do they say? You know, for a mind, like, like don't, the whole don't do drugs thing in the 80s, you know, don't do drugs, a mind's a terrible thing to waste. I don't know, about it. anyway, something like that. Yeah, the mind is a terrible thing to waste, but it's also crazy sometimes. It, it can imagine awful things. It can go down paths that life would never, ever take us. And so I'm gonna share with you four ways that you can help someone whose heart is broken how Jonathan helps David here. Because it's very difficult to see beyond the ominous mountain that's planted itself right in front of you if you're the only one looking at it. So four ways that Jonathan helps David move forward. Look at verse 11. And Jonathan said unto David, come and let us go out into the field. And they went out, both of them, into the field. Number one, if you want to help somebody whose heart's been broken, do not leave them alone with their thoughts. Do not leave them alone with their thoughts. I love what Jonathan tells David here. He says, come, let us go out into the field. Let's go for a walk. It's probably going to take more than a phone call or a text. But if you know someone who has a broken heart, go find them and take them somewhere. Go for a walk together. Get them moving. Never, ever underestimate the value of taking the next step and of helping someone do so. I remember I heard someone say once, what's the hardest step a man ever takes? And you hear some people answer that, they go, well, the first step. No, it's not. It's the next step. It's always the next step. Because it's the next step that you're terrified of. It's the next step that you're absolutely convinced is the horrible one. It's always the next step. And so if you know someone who's got a broken heart, go find them. 
Go bang on the door. <laughs> Tell them, you don't have to talk to me. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to answer my questions. But you do have to go for a walk with me. Because when you get out in the sun or the stars, you start to see that the world's not as small as you think. Your problem's not as big as you think. And you can actually take another step forward. The second thing that Jonathan does here with David is that he speaks truth to David through prayer. Look at verse 12. When they get out into the field, it says that Jonathan says unto David, O Lord God of Israel. So he's praying, but he's talking to David. O Lord God of Israel. I'm not talking about preaching in prayer. That's not good. But he's talking to David through his prayer. O Lord God of Israel, when I have sounded my father about tomorrow, any time or the third day, behold, if there be good toward David, and I then do not send unto you and show it to you, the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it please my father to do the evil, then I will show it to you and send you on your way. He says here, Lord, I want to involve you in this conversation. I'm going to make a commitment to David here, but I want you to be invited into this conversation. And through his prayer, he communicates his love to David. And he communicates that whatever happens, David is going to be okay. He says, David, I'm talking to the Lord right now, but I'm also talking to you. Lord, show David. Let him understand that whatever happens, whatever the answer is, whether it's good or it's bad, he is going to be able to take the next step in peace. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Strong on me will save. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.